I'm on the apps like a lot of us. And yeah, I was looking, you know, scrolling through. I was like, he's kind of cute. And the person happened to be Chinese. And I thought he was kind of cute. And I was interested. So I messaged, hey, how's it going? And then he messages back, oh, not into black guys. Sorry, just a preference. And my immediate knee-jerk reaction was, oh, yeah, a lot of Chinese guys just aren't into black men. And then I remember thinking, huh, wow, you just used a massive broad brush an entire group of people. And that's where I go back to empathy, actively listening, questioning. I'm Jade Pichette, they them. And I'm Erin Davis. I use the pronouns she and her. Welcome to Uncovering Belonging. A podcast that explores the professional and personal stories of unique voices of what it means to belong. And the journey to finding our authentic self. Aaron, I am so excited today to introduce you to Jefferson Darrell, he, him, the founder and CEO of Breakfast Culture. I'm excited as well because Jefferson and I had the opportunity to connect and get to know each other a little bit. And so I'm excited to do a bit of a deeper dive. Yeah, definitely. I met Jefferson early in the pandemic online when Private Work Canada was trying to pivot to really try and find enough virtual content because we had been doing so much in person. And so Jefferson was one of the people I got introduced to very early on because of his background in diversity, equity and inclusion work, as well as his specific knowledge in terms of how you do that in a marketing context and some of his marketing background. And so he did a really, really amazing webinar for us called Woke Marketing Rainbow Edition that our partners loved. He's also become our anti-Black racism action plan consultant, and he's become one of the people that I really value and admire in my network. And so I'm so excited to introduce you today to Jefferson, and just like myself, is calling in from Toronto or Toronto today. And so welcome, Jefferson. Thank you, Jade. Happy to be here. This is Aaron, and I'm recording this after the fact to provide our listeners with a content note and let you know in advance that throughout the conversation, Jefferson shares experiences of suicidal ideation as well as anti-Black racism. We wanted to take a quick pause and encourage you to check in with yourself so that you can decide whether this is content you're able to engage with at this moment before listening on. Tell us a little bit about your story. How did you get into this work? Thank you, Aaron. Happy to share my story. It's funny, I often hear, how did you get into this line of work? And I can't speak for everyone, obviously, but I suspect a lot of people who listen to this, I think we're always, always just doing this because we have to for our own survival. Mm-hmm. For me specifically, part of it was my own life experience, lived experiences, working within an organization when there was quite a bit of um, racism, specifically anti-Black racism. And through that, I also found out about some of the gender discrimination that was happening there, homophobia that was happening there as well. And I ended up becoming this go-to voice for the marginalized peoples in the workplace. Tell me more about that. So I spent eight years in this organization. I always say I spent seven years too long. Mm. It was not a good time for me. I was extremely depressed, frankly, to the point of I felt suicidal. Mm. Sunday morning at 3 a.m. was always the worst. I would literally wake up in a cold sweat, dreading going into work the next day. That said, when I say suicidal, I need to qualify this. Um, I was in therapy for about three or four years and I was going through all of this. My therapist kept asking me, do you have a plan to take your own life? 
to be clear, I did not have a plan to take my own life. I felt more hopeless than helpless. Mm -hmm. um, behavioral psychologist Will Smith, not the smart Will Smith, <laughs> but the psychologist Will Smith, he actually did a study on this. He called it racial battle fatigue or RBF. Mm -hmm. And it talks about the physical, mental, and emotional impact that racism, especially systemic racism, but racism, period, can have on racialized peoples within the workplace. And I was a very much a textbook of example of that. And it was a horrible, horrible, dark time in my life. And I realized I don't want anyone else to have to go through what I went through. And that's one of the reasons why I got into this work, because I'm very much, you know what, if I'm going to complain about something, let me come to the table with a solution. And I took all my learning and my experience and I put it into um, breakfast culture. So maybe a bit of a follow up, Jefferson, you kind of at the beginning of your story shared this I would say, sense of exclusion in the role that you were doing, right? And have you found a greater sense of belonging now that you have this organization and you get to dive into this work every single day? Um, there's that old saying that when we don't get a seat at the table, we'll often leave and make our own tables. And that's basically what I've done. I hear that. Not without its own challenges, because I operated at a C-suite level, but I was never given the title and I was never given the compensation that goes with that. Right. So I never received that golden parachute to start my own business. I'm bootstrapping it all myself. Totally. Um, it's funny. I received a really good piece of advice when I first started my company to make sure you partner with people whose values align with yours. And that's something we do look for. Mm. And if anyone you're thinking of partnering with, their values don't align with yours, no matter how proactive that partnership looks, don't partner with them because it's not going to end well. Yeah. And you're also speaking to not only sort of the words on the paper, but also living those values every single day, right? Oh, exactly. It's kind of exciting when you think about it from the perspective of like, okay, I get to start from a place of what's going to work for me. So I have this sense of belonging and how can I bring other people into this space so they can have that sense of belonging rather than the opposite of try to fit yourself into this system. That's one of the three B's of what we call our um, marketing offering. Be authentic to your brand. If it doesn't make sense for your brand, that's okay. You're not necessarily going to speak to everybody. And if it doesn't make sense for your brand, don't try to fit yourself in, as you said, where it doesn't make sense. Absolutely. Um, the other two Bs are be present and be prepared. But that's for another discussion. <laughs> I suspect they might weave themselves into our dialogue. I'm going to turn it over to Jade and give them the opportunity to dive a bit deeper. Thank you, Aaron. I appreciate the depth of vulnerability and many pieces that connect to some of my own histories of a previous workplace. And this quote really stuck in my head, the James Baldwin quote of the place in which I'll fit will not exist until I make it. Exactly. At least for the three of us, we've had to go outside of um, traditional spaces to create that space for ourselves. But we're helping and trying to create that space for others. So what are some of the barriers that you see in terms of actually bringing that space from these consulting spaces, nonprofit spaces to a space where we can actually see people who look like us, who have similar experiences as us? I find one of the biggest barriers is I have a lot of clients approach breakfast culture with a solution already. Mm. They've already made the decision of, well, we want to do training versus let's talk to our people first see what we might want to actually train them on. Right. 
So I had one client that came to us in 2020 during the racial awakening. They skewed heavily with a number of white employees. So just anecdotally, observationally, they realized, okay, we may have some problems from a systemic racism issue. That didn't surprise them, and that came out in the data. But what also came out in the data, which completely surprised them, was 40% of their staff had hidden disabilities, and they were just gobsmacked. They're like, wow, we had no idea. The other piece that came out was um, majority of their um, employees were under the age of 35 and anyone over the age of 35 felt like, oh, so you're giving me the hey boomer. So when it comes to training now, based on that data from what their people actually told them, it actually informed the training. So in addition to racism training, there needed to be ageism training, there needed to be ability training, they needed to review their policies, their accessibility in terms of the overall organization. Mm-hmm. So that's where I say is I find that's a barrier because a lot of times I'll have clients reach out to breakfast culture and they just want to immediately go to training, skipping that step, that first initial, let's collect some data. I see this so often in the work that I do as well. And I see Aaron nodding as well. It is something that's systemic, right? And I think sometimes it's coming from a place of, well, we just need to do something because otherwise we're going to be perceived as doing nothing. Oh, yeah. It really is something that a lot of organizations need to rethink, you know, how do we actually start at the beginning and look at this from an intersectional perspective and recognize that there's no one issue to be able to make a community feel completely included. You hit the nail on the head. Our courses are built to build on each other. We start with Diversity and Inclusion 101, very foundational. Our second course we recommend after that, we call it Power and Privilege. That's Breakfast Culture's approach to unconscious bias training. We flip it and we talk about how we all benefit from forms of privilege. For example, in DNI 101, I do a quick little privilege test where I put up seven very common privileges in North America. I'm sure we can think of them now. Are you male? Are you straight? Are you white? Are you cis? Are you able-bodied? Do you have socioeconomic privilege? And were you bought up in the Christian faith? It's not an exhaustive list. For me as a black gay man, I score five out of seven on that list. And that's a high score. <laughs> and this is what I'm saying. We all benefit from some form of privilege. And then that sort of third section of exercises, we break them down. So we call them allies of verb. We have a racism edition where we just look at white privilege and how white people, men, women, trans, etc., benefit in today's society. We have a women's edition where we look at male privilege and the patriarchy and misogyny and how men, black, gay, trans men even, benefit from male privilege in society. Definitely. And if anyone comes in, well, what about, what about? You're right. There are other people who don't have these privileges. The only one who wins when we get into a pressure Olympics is the oppressor. Agreed. And so that's why I always like to tell my clients, I don't care who you are, but before we do Ali as a verb, we are doing power and privilege first to help avoid that whataboutism in oppression Olympics. Yeah, that's so important. I know one of the most powerful anti-racism trainings that was like designed by Chanel Gallant, it was called uh, Beyond White Tears, and she got a lot of support. One of the things that she kept going back to in that was, let's make sure to reaffirm what about looking at that issue specifically. So when it came to racism, you know, as a white person, I may be a disabled trans femme and I could go on, but what about the experience of a 
trans femme of color who's disabled in that same experience and really needing to focus on that. So making sure that people have kind of this broader understanding of power, privilege, how it interacts in the world, how we all have privileges, but that things can interact differently when those different privileges and oppressions interact. Exactly. So I'm hearing like, look at the broader picture, step back, and then focus in on specific forms of marginalization. What other things have you seen that work really, really well to make kind of that systemic change? Biggest thing I'd say is empathy. Mm -hmm. Empathizing with other people's perspectives, number one. Number two, active listening. Mm. Actually listen to understand, not to counter. And then number three is questioning, like questioning our own biases. Right. May I share a quick little story? Of course. I'm on the apps like a lot of us. And, you know, I was looking, you know, scrolling through. I was like, he's kind of cute. And the person happened to be Chinese. And I thought he was kind of cute. And I was interested. So I messaged, hey, how's it going? And then he messages back, oh, not into black guys. Sorry, just a preference. And my immediate knee-jerk reaction was, oh, yeah, a lot of Chinese guys just aren't into black men. And then I remember thinking, huh, wow, you just used a massive broad brush an entire group of people. And that's where I go back to empathy, actively listening, questioning. And I thought, you know what? That's a racist thought. Why did I think that? Where did that come from? And learning from it and moving forward. Mm -hmm. That initial voice that comes up, I like to describe that as the voice of the oppressor in all of us. But really that second voice, that second moment where you say, oh, wait, why did I think that? That's who we truly are, though. And so I think there is hope when we take that moment back and um, move beyond it. And I don't think we do enough of that in today's society. I think we're just looking at things through our own cultural lens. Agreed. And that's the part that um, I find is kind of scaring me now. Yeah, there is fear. There is fear that is happening in the world, but there's also hope, too. And I thank you for that, because I often forget about the hope. Right. And that's why I still do this work. I love that. So I'm going to pass it back over to Aaron. Thanks, Jade. And I'm just uh, sitting here reflecting on all of that hope. Jefferson, for you, what are we working towards? What are we trying to get to? What does that look like for you? Ultimately, I think empathy. Mm -hmm. As human beings, just empathizing with other people's scenarios and situations, um, which is often very hard to do. Some of these lessons I've learned personally, in case we'll probably about 15 years ago, I was diagnosed with a very rare neurological disorder that left me paralyzed from the waist down. I literally had to relearn how to walk. And it's funny because I started seeing how people treated me when I had these mobility issues. And it really taught me a lot about ableism. Mm -hmm. And I remember friends of mine invited me to a restaurant. I was hunched over, I had to use two canes. Literally, I could not walk and chew gum. At the same time, I had to think about every single moment putting my foot down, rolling from the heel into the toes, making sure my weight's distributed there. Is my balance good? Okay, I can lift up my next leg now. And the hostess said, oh, do you know what table you might be looking for? And spoke to me as if I was stupid. And I just looked at her without skipping a beat. I said, I just can't walk. I'm not dumb. <laughs> and that's where I go back to empathy and just put yourself in other people's shoes, whether that's women, whether that's trans people, whether that's racialized people. And I just don't think we do enough of that. So in terms of working towards, that's what I'd say is a space I think we're trying to get to. And then also from an organizational lens, when we start looking at systemic issues, because a lot of the challenges that marginalized groups face often do fall under systemic issues, 
based on a lot of these individual assumptions. 100%. And I think we don't create the time to reflect. We don't create the time to have empathy, if that makes sense. And I'm worried about that. So I think a reminder for folks to how are you actioning rather than just talking about it. As Jade quoted earlier, I often do quote James Baldwin myself. And one of my favorite quotes from James Baldwin is, I can't believe what you say because I see what you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so true. Actions absolutely speak such volumes. Totally. So what do we need to focus on to build a more inclusive world? One thing I've recognized in the DNI space, a lot of it is actually marketing. Yeah. A lot of it's really public relations, which is my core background. Public relations at its core is about changing public perception, getting people to think differently so they'll act differently. In the past, I used to use my power as an action was buy my widget, whether that was theater tickets or watch the television network that I worked for or buy the soap that I was selling. Now the action is I want you to start thinking differently and thinking and questioning yourself in terms of why am I thinking this way? Where is this coming from? Yeah. And I think if we start focusing on that more as individuals, I think the world would be a much better place, personally. Absolutely. We've talked for quite a while. It's such a great conversation, and I know we could talk a lot longer, but I want to throw us into the rapid fire. So do we feel ready for some rapid fire? Sure. (laughs) So our first question is, if you could recommend one book, what would it be? It's a book called What If? Short Stories to Spark Inclusion and Diversity Dialogue. It's written by Steve L. Robbins, PhD. What I love about this book is for people who are not familiar with the DNI space, it's very accessible. I love that. And I actually have not read that book, so it is now officially on my list. So next question, what brings you joy no matter what? I think it's spending time with my niece. We'll just go on adventures and we'll go check out like art exhibits or we'll go check out dance things. We'll just do something fun together. We'll sometimes just cook together even. I love that. Yeah, that's absolutely beautiful. Now I want you to be my uncle. So what is your theme song for today? It's been an oldie but a goodie from the 1990s. Love Inc. You're a superstar. Reach for the sky. (laughs) Hold your head up high for tonight and every night. You're a superstar. Anyways, I could go on. Side note for everyone, if you're able to, getting up and dancing is just, I think, another opportunity for joy. But back to the questions. Who is someone that inspires you but doesn't receive enough credit? Two people came to mind. So one is my friend Ken. I might be shooting myself in the foot when I say this, but um, a man by the name of Randall Pierce. So our final question, what is one call to action you'd like from our listeners? When you have those biased thoughts, those discriminatory thoughts, those racist thoughts, those homophobic thoughts, those transphobic thoughts, we all have them. Like you're lying to yourself if you don't. I want you to stop, pause, and question, where is that coming from? What's happening? Why am I thinking that? What has caused me to have this thought? That's an amazing one. Thank you so much, Jefferson, for joining us today. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. So great to hear Jefferson and reminding us about how important empathy is and active listening and this idea of 
questioning ourselves. Where is that bias coming from? Because we all have it. We can't eliminate it, but we can definitely interrupt it. So I appreciated his perspectives there. Yeah, I share everything that you said, and we've talked about this in previous episodes. We're becoming more and more divided. Mm-hmm. Everybody's just kind of going to their own sources, mm-hmm. including probably many of our listeners who come here because they share a similar belief system that you and I do, Aaron, even though we have very different experiences. Right. One of my go-tos is the seven habits of highly effective people, and habit five is actually seek first to understand and then to be understood. Mm. That goes through everything that Jefferson was saying and frankly, how he works in the world. So I've been grateful for that. Me too. Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed, learned, and uncovered deeper belonging with us. Connect with us on LinkedIn and let us know what part of today's episode resonated most with you. Many thanks to our production team, editor and producer, Sean Ahmed, communications, Louise Augusto Nobre, and production support, Connor Pion. We would also like to thank and share a brief message from our sponsors, Pride at Work Canada. For 2S LGBTQIA plus people in Canada to confront today's economic challenges, they need good jobs with rising incomes. Because of stigma, stereotypes, bias, and discrimination against 2S LGBTQIA plus people, empowering community members with skills is simply not enough of a strategy. Pride at Work Canada operates as a member services agency for employers, offering institutional education and guidance to organizations that make a commitment to supporting 2S LGBTQIA plus inclusion. The vision we share with our employer members is a Canada where every individual can achieve their full potential at work, regardless of gender expression, gender identity, and sexual orientation. For more information about our membership and programs, please visit prideatwork.ca. And of course, most of all, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this important discussion. For more information about today's guest, links reference, and a transcript, check out our show notes, which are available on Pride at Work Canada's website. Thank you so much for coming on this journey with us to uncover belonging. Belonging.